0: This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians, healthcare providers. I am Amit Ghosh, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. The topic for today's discussion is COVID and skin alterations, including unavoidable pressure injuries. Pressure injuries in bedridden patients present significant challenges which are compounded in the patients with COVID-19 diagnosis. In this episode, we will discuss the problems encountered in preventing, diagnosing, and managing the skin alterations in COVID-19. Today, we are joined by Ms. Jennifer Elmer, who is Assistant Professor in Nursing, and Brianna Krukrud, who is Instructor School of Nursing, and both of them are our wound care experts at Mayo Clinic Rochester, they're going to discuss about the pressure injuries that are unavoidable and why COVID-19 pose a great risk for skin alteration in hospitalized patients. Thank you for joining us Bree and Jen. I welcome you to the show.
1: Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us. Thank you.
0: There's a lot which has changed in the field of pressure injuries including the terms have changed. Uh, I would like you to kind of give our audience a background on What has been evolving in in your field of pressure ulcers, pressure injuries? Can you give us some situations which lead to unavoidable skin injuries?
1: This is Brianna Screwcrude. I'm also one of the pressure injury subgroup committees that review all the hospital-acquired pressure injuries. In 2014, we transitioned from pressure ulcer to pressure injury. And so that's the terminology we use here at Mayo Clinic. And so when we have identified a patient that has developed a hospital acquired pressure injury since admission, we look to see what are the causes of the pressure injury. So um, a lot of times the patients will develop what looks like a deep tissue pressure injury over bony prominence or underneath uh, medical devices. So once we've identified that this wound has either progressed to a stage three, stage four, or unstageable, we have to report this to the state. And so once we report it to our state, our team, the pressure injury subgroup, uh, will perform what's called a root cause analysis. And so we take a deep dive and look at the evolution of this wound. What are some of the causes? Some of the causes could be due to medical devices. And so we look and see, was there the proper order put in for the medical device? Were their skin assessments done? A lot of times we see these pressure injuries on the coccyx and sacrum in the ICU. We look at the documentation. Was nursing charting adequately the repositioning every two to three hours? Did the patient have a prophylactic sacral border? For example, for the avoidable ones, we find gaps in the practice. So then we formulate... Uh, what the state really likes from us uh, in our, our action plan are strong or intermediate action plans. So sometimes we have to change our guidelines or our practice or way we order, say, specialty beds. A lot of the gaps we find in, in the root cause analysis is maybe we weren't repositioning our patients every two or three hours. There is no documentation. Maybe the patient, uh, there's no documentation of a prophylactic sacral border. Some patients require CPAP or a breathing treatment. Did they have a protective dressing underneath that CPAP? The unavoidable ones that we will look at, we will do a deep dive and say, okay, was all of the best practice for prevention implemented? Was it accurately documented? And we cannot find any gaps in practice. So then we would deem that unavoidable and report to the state that this was an unavoidable pressure injury.
0: This leads us to the position paper which was published by your organization, the National Pressure Injury Advisory Panel also called NPIAP, a a very eye-opener, opening kind of paper published in 2020 and they want wide distribution of the paper. We will include the link uh, of this paper at the end of the podcast The statement which was kind of startling was that during COVID-19, there are situations where you're going to see a lot more unavoidable pressure injuries. It has gone to the extent that it's not only pressure injuries, but there are other skin alterations. Could you just talk about some of the skin alterations which COVID-19 patients, especially the ones who are hospitalized that you're seeing
2: in uh, Mayo Clinic? What might be mistaken as a pressure injury, we're seeing in these COVID patients, many times they're dark purple discolorations of skin on the soft tissue, likely not over a pressure point or pressure injury prone area that we would typically see with a pressure injury. These patients are usually critically ill, have multi-system organ failure. They might have low flow states and require vasopressors to maintain life. They usually almost always require mechanical ventilation So they have all these factors I think we can talk about later on as well, but we're seeing these purple discolorations, irregular shaped, mixed with dark purple tissue and regular healthy tissue on places we wouldn't normally see a typical pressure injury presentation that might be on the chest, that might be on the face, that might be on a buttock area that's not over a bony prominence. As these injuries evolve, we notice that they're not deep, they're very superficial So when that top layer of skin does come off as we're treating it, we note that there are really not deep tissue pressure injuries that would have a typical presentation um, like a pressure injury would.
0: That's great, uh, Jen. Thank you for covering all the different manifestations of the skin alterations which are happening in COVID. Going through this document, there are several things which are intrinsic to the condition of the patient or to the situation they are presenting clinically, whether they're in an ICU and what are the situation they are in in the ICU, that could cause skin alterations. And there are other factors which are extrinsic, has got nothing to do with the patient, but the situation that we are posed by the pandemic or the hospital they go in or the crisis mode that everybody's in. What are the intrinsic factors which are intrinsic to the patient Which are causing these skin alterations in COVID-19?
2: Yeah, great question. You know, I think we still have a lot that's unknown as this evolves and as we study it further. We definitely, and from the paper you can see, we we think there's a connection between that vascular coagulopathy and the inflammation cycle that the patient's undergoing in that multi-system organ failure, and skin failure is definitely a manifestation of that. A lot of the critically ill patients have high D-dimers, but that doesn't differentiate that they will or will not get a skin alteration, a COVID-mediated skin alteration. We definitely know that these patients, a lot of these patients have to be prone to help their ventilation. That has a little bit of an intrinsic and extrinsic factor because we have to put them in positions we wouldn't normally put a patient. And we're seeing skin alterations in places with prone patients that we would not normally see in a non-COVID patient. So from an intrinsic factor, it's definitely there's that vascular coagulopathy that inflammation cycle that skin failure um, modality that we're seeing
0: and i'm also reading and, and correct me about the challenges of giving nutrition you need good protein mm-hmm. You go to deliver good protein and even feeding tubes have become difficult both enteral feeding and other forms of feeding especially in prone position mm-hmm. and when they are so critically sick with ARDS is that also one of the intrinsic cause for
2: this problem I definitely think that plays a role in it. We here at Mayo Clinic do feed them even in the prone position because we feel like maintaining that protein and the the albumin in their system is vitally important to help heal the skin or mediate some of these skin alterations. And I'll let Bree maybe expound on that if you have anything else to add.
0: One of the things which came out is COVID is a completely brand new disease. It's about a year old, and we have never been challenged in the way we have both the number of patients and the number of complications. From my understanding of these unavoidable pressure injuries or avoidable pressure injuries, the previous guidelines have all been laid down in patients with some chronic conditions. either they are in long care facilities or ICU for a while, they are debilitated. But in the acute setting, and so many things are going on with multi-organ failure, that's not been studied to that extent. So what are you learning with your experience of seven, eight months when it comes to intrinsic? uh, Can you predict which patients are going to land in trouble? Or Still, from my understanding, it's very hard to predict who's going to be in which situation.
2: That is very correct. Um, I think there's so much unknown, as you just mentioned. We can't predict which ones are going to have skin alterations and which ones aren't. We have plenty of patients that are in the same situation that don't develop skin alterations. And really trying to find that common link, and that's been a really big challenge for us is you know, helping one, not only predicting, but also preventing if we can predict which patients those are. And we do try and do different mediation measures when we're proning patients, when we're, um, when they're in such a low flow state, but we really have not seen a pattern of which ones are going to go down the road of having a skin alterations and which, and which one aren't.
0: One of the striking thing which came out is all the recommendations which have been made for COVID. Okay. Prone positioning. So everybody's doing prone positioning now. And then the multi-organ failure, okay, there is fluid in the lungs. So give them diuretics, dry them out. All of these, the unintended consequences that their skin alterations are increasing. There is increased injury from each of these new interventions, which have been recommended. And a lot of these, we are learning as it is going. They were, we were not aware of what the consequences of some of these findings would be. And it's unavoidable because at the present moment, these are still the best treatments, your prone positioning and all that. So I'm sure all of you are going through a lot of stress. I've heard about moral outrage and moral distress, which the nursing team is going through, because nurses are used to get giving the best evidence-based treatment possible. And there is no evidence here. The evidence is evolving. Things are not in order. How has your team, especially the wound care specialists, coping with this situation?
2: You know, I think we, as, you know, coming in and assessing wounds is definitely a secondary part of this. Working in the medical ICU for as many years as I have and supporting the nurses in the medical ICU that are taking care of these critically ill COVID patients, there is definitely moral distress. There's moral distress on, you know, how well the, or not the patients do, having visitors or not having visitors, you know, to support the family members. I think that's a huge stressor on the team and the nursing staff as a whole when they develop a skin alterations, nurses take that very personally. They do their best to try and avoid those things because they know how consequential they could be for the patients. I think our job has been really to reassure them that they are doing everything right and that we are trying to follow the latest evidence and really help better understand from the wound care standpoint why these things are happening and how we can help prevent them if possible, which at this point we really don't know a lot about yet.
0: So not only your You're a consultant who's helping with the care of the wound. You're also a supportive friend to the nurses there, the ICU and other care facilities, and the doctors, residents. Now, the second part of uh, the factor analysis, as we say, is the extrinsic factors. What has happened in COVID-19 pandemic, which has really changed our world around so much, not only requirement to ICU, the ventilators, but when it comes to skin alterations and skin care, what has happened?
2: I don't think we know the answer to that, unfortunately. Definitely, you know, you want to make sure you're staffing as well as you can staff. A lot of hospitals across the country have struggled with that. The acuteness of the patients, the volumes of the patients and the resources they have. We really strive to maintain that care we would give pre-COVID. But the de- it's definitely a stress around the system, as you mentioned earlier. I think we tr- still try and model our evidence-based practice that we always have done turning, prophylactic dressings, trying to mediate things that we already know are best practices. And again, sometimes that may make a difference and sometimes that doesn't based off of the intrinsic factors that the patient has going on.
0: What about the protective devices like the support surfaces, which Mm -hmm. would redistribute pressure, they reduce the forces and manage, uh, you're talking about managing the humidity in the skin and all the different equipment which is required because of this pandemic and the need for, with the rush of so many patients, we had to convert a lot of the regular beds for these patients. And these are not ICU beds or comfort beds are not traditionally designed to take care of these patients, but the number overwhelmed us. The supply chain was a problem to get all these equipments which you really require. Is that something which we know of?
1: I think we're just very fortunate here at our facility that we did not run into like a bed situation. All of our ICUs have, I believe, the best ICU beds uh, that help with uh, low air loss management. And even in a time of pandemic at our facility, we did find it such a need and a patient safety issue that we need to get better beds throughout the whole entire hospital. So both campuses we will be getting new beds for our patients to prevent any further skin alterations or pressure injuries in our care at, at our facility.
0: What kind of training does it need to be a brie, a Brie a Jennifer, uh, somebody who's so expert to take care of a patient who's admitted with these kind of skin changing, skin alteration. And if you have to transfer these skills to the frontline workers, like a nurse in transition, the traveling nurses... Or the residents. How long does it take to be certified in this area?
1: I could say, in my experience, minimum. I know this sounds like a long time—five years. But I still, every day, I'm learning new things about wounds every day. But it is a tincture of time, and it takes that skill set to know all the, read all the protocols, put it into your practice, and even simple preventive measures like what we call micro turns. Like so you can impact these wounds by doing simple maneuvers, micro turns. It doesn't have to be a foam border. Maybe it's just like an ABD type of pad that you can fold and um, have to protect these bony prominences. But yeah, it takes years to be an expert and to understand the process of these type of wounds. And With the COVID wounds and the skin discolorations, the purple skin, we're still learning every day on the cause of this. I would add that Bree and I work very well in a tandem team. And I think optimizing your
2: team is, even if you don't have the wound care expert, maybe you have one person that's skilled in wounds, but another person like myself that is got the ICU background and the physiology behind what's happening with that patient and what we have to do to that patient to help them survive their illness, we are fortunate we can, Bree and I can partner together in that way. You know, I've had wound care training over many decades, but... I look to Bree to be that expert in her trauma training and her skin wound care training. And then we partner together as a multidisciplinary team in critical care and in wound care and trauma care to care for that patient, because it's not just the wound, you're tapping to care for that whole patient. And because we have to prone them, because we have to do things that maybe the wound care person isn't an expert in, we we have to partner in those ways to provide that best um, holistic care to that patient.
0: So the part of the Unavoidable pressure injury, which we are talking about during COVID-19, is that despite our best effort, despite having the right people, we may not have all the equipment. We may not have enough train in the sense of like what you're talking about training to take care of this large number of patients. And hopefully, all the other steps that we are taking, the vaccinations and the masking and other things, would decrease the pressure of having these kind of patients uh, Um, who require ICU and skin care, what kind of skin lesions should alert us that this could develop? This could be uh, subsequently leading to one of those uh, deep tissue pressure injuries. And what are the other lesions which are probably just COVID? They are because of the thrombotic changes in the skin and just are superficial and can be dealt with that.
1: The deep tissue injuries that I am very fearful of are the ones that usually are found in the coccyx or the sacral region. Most of these patients are in the ICU, critically ill. In the hypoperfusion phase, they're requiring vasopressors, they're uh, multi-organ dysfunction. And they develop this deep tissue injury right over the coccyx. And sometimes it goes to either buttock region and it evolves into an unstageable wound. And then usually when we have to debride, it's a full thickness wound. So sometimes down to the bone, the muscle and requires prolonged hospitalizations. The other ones that I get really nervous about that start out as a deep tissue injury and evolve to a three and a four are sometimes in the high risk patients that have peripheral vascular disease, have arterial disease, and maybe they had a knee immobilizer on that maybe unfortunately wasn't removed or the skin wasn't inspected after a few days and it evolves into a full thickness wound. Some of the other wounds that if I do not believe that they're from pressure, there are a couple other ones that can look like a deep tissue injury, but are purple skin alterations, such as a traumatic injury is, it's called a morale lavallee lesion. And so sometimes it'll look like a bruise and it's usually from trauma and it has an internal degloving and a lot of the damage is under that muscle bone interface. And that could evolve to a full thickness wound. There's another skin manifestation or purple area on the skin that is found in calciphylaxis, And so it usually represents like a retiform purpura, kind of evolves to this eschar and could look like a deep tissue injury. But usually you'll find that in the end-stage renal disease, morbid obesity, type 2 diabetes, in that population. So you know it's not a deep tissue injury from pressure, you know it's from the disease process. There are some arterial wounds that I have seen to the lower extremities that maybe a patient got revascularized and had a reperfusion of the lower extremity. And I've seen that it looks like a long purple or bruising to the lower extremity in the calf region. When I do a, a thorough evaluation, I'm like, this is not from pressure. This is from the patient's underlying vascular disease or arterial disease and develop this wound due to the history of the vascular disease. So those are just a few that I have seen that could mimic a deep tissue injury. As we evolved into the COVID, a
2: lot of these mimic, as we've said, and there are great pictures out there, um, especially on the National Pressure Injury Advisory Panel webpage, the, those purple areas irregular. What we're seeing in the COVID skin mediated um, skin alterations are they mimic deep tissue injuries, they're dark purple or they're blister like alterations. They're irregular in shape. They don't have a direct correlation to a pressure point or a pressure device or an area of pressure. And they have healthy skin mixed in with that dark purple skin, which maybe differentiates it a little bit from a deep tissue pressure injury where that it's more uniform in shape. It's deep purple, but you don't have that healthy skin. And um, again, when, when they de-roof or de-glob, they tend to ha- be superficial versus that deeper presentation like Brie was alluding to.
0: But apart from these skin lesions, which are happening because of thrombotic lesions, thrombotic changes because of COVID, as well as this pressure sites, there are others uh, which you mentioned, uh, tube feeding, uh, the mask that's goes on, the tracheostomy site. When you're doing a evaluation of these patients, what other areas are you seeing based on the devices which are connected to the patients?
2: As with evidence-based practice, with any device you want to be able to protect the skin in that area, whether it be a nasal gastric tube, non-invasive mask for um, CPAP or BiPAP, my thought is you're paying special attention to those areas, making sure you have prophylactic dressings. If you have endotracheal tube ties or a a commercial endotracheal um, securement device, making sure that Anything that's touching the skin is padded, protected. There's a barrier between that and the device because I think these patients are at higher risk for developing skin alterations due to the device that a non-COVID patient would have
0: risk of. And these barriers itself, they have to be changed from time to
2: time? Yeah, the skin has to be assessed um, regularly. And that's definitely depending on your institutional standards, your state standards, or your local standards. Yes, changing them frequently, making sure that they're functioning Sticking to the skin or you know, creating that barrier that you're expecting, readjusting as needed because of moisture on the skin and because of the patient movement, and shear and friction. Uh, making sure that not only the assessment's there but the prophylaxis is there for those high risk areas.
0: These moments of great stress and strive have also been opportunities for innovation in every area in COVID. Has there been any areas of innovation that you know in your area in field? of wound prevention or?
1: I haven't heard of anything being changed, but I think of innovation, I think we need new studies. And so I think dermatology, there's a couple of papers where they've done some punch biopsies and kind of looked at these skin alterations to see what type of thrombi is happening. We have collaborated with all of our Mayo sites and have talked amongst all of the wound providers and like, what are you seeing? let's put all of our data together let's talk this through let's you know what areas do we think we need to do more research or study we just collaborate with MPIAP we reach out to some of them and discuss some of the things that we're finding i highly recommend that institutions throughout the us and the country if they are seeing these type of skin alterations to send your in- information to the MPIAP data registry so we will be able to look at these wounds and see if there's anything that we can Help us understand the cause of it from a technology
2: standpoint. Is making wound care experts accessible is sometimes a challenge, especially in these COVID isolation type patients. Using if you have electronic means of evaluating, whether it be iPads or um, some sort of electronic device, that that one person, if you have one expert or a few experts, they can help cover a broader area by video or by picture, and not necessarily seeing something uh, real time with the patient. There's no better than that, but trying to think of innovative ways to assess those patients and guide those nurses and physicians to care for those patients, even if it's in a remote fashion.
0: Thanks, Jen. That was one of my questions. I'll take the lead from you. What you said is that since there are so many Brie and Jen to go around and we need a lot more nursing, is there from NPIP, is there any kind of movement to have the education for a larger number of nurses or support staff? Are there any videos or innovative educational material going from the NPiP?
1: There are some webcasts from the wound experts that you can register for. There are guidelines that nursing can easily access. There are resources. Uh, some of these resources and guidelines come with a fee. But the MPIAP website has multiple resources, multiple educational resources and we utilize their resources quite often. that
0: will be great. I think we will will include that website in our podcast that will help our uh, learners. So can you tell us again about the skin alterations which are happening in COVID-19, which may or may not lead to pressure injuries?
2: I would just be mindful that when you're assessing any skin alteration in a COVID-confirmed patient, that you start thinking about other factors versus pressure injury Um, and really even though it looks like it might present like a pressure injury to examine all those other things like you mentioned and also be open to the fact that these are likely skin alterations or COVID-mediated skin alterations that are manifestations from COVID or the treatment of COVID. We're not 100% sure where that etiology lies rather than um, jumping to the pressure injury because that's definitely probably a different pathway than um, really examining the COVID mediated skin alteration.
0: The last question for you would be, I've had a lot of colleagues who send me pictures and put it on the Facebook. They've been using N95s. They were using it at the start of the pandemic and they're putting pictures of these big round or the uh, oval shaped and horrific marks on their face. How do we avoid these kind of lesions?
2: You know, that's a challenging question because there are circumstances, especially in the ICU, where you're wearing an N95 majority of the day or a tight-fitting mask in that fashion. We have recommended a couple things, a skin barrier. If you can do some sort of liquid skin barrier to help with those pressure areas, obviously the gold standard is relief from that mask when you can get it, even if it's for short periods of time. The key is not to alter anything that would alter the fit of your mask. Um, You don't want to add anything, any layers or barriers that would alter the fit and put you at risk for not having a good-fitting mask. If you're going to put something, a dressing, a prophylactic dressing on your face to help mediate that, we recommend you get refitted so that you know that you have a good seal. So if if you're doing some sort of uh, dressing on the bridge of the nose or on the the chin to help prevent some of that, that you're making sure you have a good seal and you're refit testing if you use those products routinely.
0: I thank you, Bree and Jen, for your time. We learned a lot about the skin alterations in COVID-19, including the Unavoidable Pressure Injuries, we also learned about some of the statements from a great paper which was published in the National Pressure Injury Advisory Panel, and we will include the PDF of that paper. Uh, We talked about the scope of the situation, including the extrinsic and intrinsic factors which are causing these kind of unavoidable pressure injuries in patients with COVID. And we are also hoping, as Brie mentioned, that there'll be more research more biopsies, uh, more understanding from a team work of uh, dermatologists, system managers uh, from NP, AIP, panel experts. But I thank you for your time, Jennifer and Brianna.
1: It's an honor to be here today, and I really appreciate the invitation. Yes, thank you.
0: Thank you, Jen and Brianna. So I would end the talk here. If you have enjoyed the Mayo Clinic podcast, please subscribe, stay healthy, and we'll see you back next week.